Hi, this is Pastor Rob with Duns Creek Baptist Church, and you are listening to Duns Creek Conversations, a weekly podcast about faith, growth, discovery, and the journey that God is taking each and every one of us on. Today on the podcast, we are joined by Tom Lewis, who is affectionately known in Jacksonville, Florida, as the Bar Chaplain. Tom and I are going to discuss his faith journey, how he went from a childhood tragedy through walking away from faith in college, and ultimately how a handful of chaplains in his life made an impact on his personal faith, and why today he believes that the best thing he can do to reach people with the message of Jesus Christ is to engage people in bar spaces. I hope that you enjoyed my conversation today with Tom Lewis. Let's get right into it. Yeah, well, I'm from Memphis, Tennessee originally, and uh, you know, grew up in a in a fairly comfortable East Memphis home. You know, nice neighborhood. Uh, dad is a physician. Uh, mother stayed at home, took care of us. I had two siblings at the time: my older brother, about six years older, uh, and then my sister, nine years older. And when I was about six years old, my sister took ill with a pneumonia that then turned into a full-blown adult respiratory distress syndrome. And she wound up being in the hospital for a year and a month, uh, during which mostly my mom stayed at the hospital with her. She was primarily in the ICU, the intensive care unit. Uh, So we had, you know, my aunt and uncle came up from Mississippi and would look after us quite a bit. My grandparents were there in Memphis, would take care of us. Um, But then after a year and a month in the hospital, my sister did pass away in January of 1995. Uh, So I was seven years old at the time. And this experience, um, you had a, a family of, of faithful believers. You grew up in a Christian home. Mm-hmm. Um, it changed something in you and for you when this happened. Um, suddenly, you know, what, what for most people I think are normal questions about faith and about God um, suddenly become much heavier and much weightier because now you're dealing with, we we love Jesus, we're following him, this tragedy has happened. And what do we do with that? And how do we make sense of that? And there were, um, there was a pastor who really came alongside your family in that season and had a big impact on your view of ministry later on in life. Can you tell us a little bit about him. Yeah, so Dr. Joey Rosas, and this was, uh, he was the pastor at our church. We we were at a, a Southern Baptist church. Now Joey would probably identify as being more acquainted with CBF. Um, his son was my brother's best friend. They were joined at the hip. Uh, in fact, the night that my sister actually died, uh, Dr. Rosas' wife, Pam, came over and took care of me that evening so mm. that the rest of the family could go to the hospital. Uh, being a seven-year-old in the ICU with my sister actively dying, we all agreed wouldn't have been the healthiest at that time. But what Dr. Rosas did that amazed me was at a time when everyone wanted to give us the easy answers. Oh, everything happens for a reason. Of course, all through that journey, oh, well, you know, the book of, the book of James says the prayer of the faithful will heal the sick. And, you know, everyone wanted to give the the cliches that I realize a lot of the times we repeat more for our comfort than the people who are actively in pain. Yeah. Dr. Rosas didn't 
have, or if he did have that impulse, he very actively pushed back on it and was really the one person willing to look at my family and say, you know, I don't understand this either, but I'm here with you and I have faith that the Spirit is here with you as well. And that one gesture, the, the humility that that took, that made a big impression. Yeah. Ultimately, um, through middle school and high school, mm-hmm. um, you stay connected and involved in church, uh, in different churches. Yeah, well, and actually it was my... my <laughs> I was the kid who would get sent to the youth minister a lot, especially when we were at any kind of camp. You know, at, at one point, if if the teaching of evolution and creation came up, I would go ahead and say, you know, my biology textbook and my Bible are not mutually exclusive. Let's talk about this. And that was enough to get me sent to Jeff. Uh, Jeff Williamson, my youth <laughs> minister, patience of a saint. Uh, you know, we, I would get sent to him every single camp we went to. And, you know, it was always, okay, what, what'd you do this time? But you had the, these experiences, and ultimately you went away to college. Yeah. And you went away to a very small school. Yes, I did. Uh, talk to us about that experience, your, your college experience, and then how was it that out of this college experience that you ended up at Duke, Duke University's seminary? Okay, well, I mean, there, there are definitely some things that at the time I would have called accidents. I look into it back now and call it providence, but... Uh, First, it's important to know that my senior year, I had, the summer prior, uh, been to this really amazing program at Emory called Youth Theological Initiative, that on the one hand, it gave me a lot of tools to talk about faith and to realize that there was a very broad spectrum of belief that fell under that big tent of Christianity. Uh, The downside of that was that when I got back to my youth group, I was just a completely insufferable know-it-all. And so I got to college and found that a small liberal arts school that was 90% atheist or agnostic was an outstanding place to take a break from church. Um, (laughs) But ultimately, during my junior year, I got involved with a protest. And through that, wound up meeting a chaplain who committed to meeting with me once a week just to talk. And his name was Jeff Burgesson. There's a lot of important Jeffs in my life. Yeah. Um, and he managed to, you know, never wanted to cram an agenda down my throat, you know, never forced his beliefs on me. But during my senior year of college said, hey, there's a conference I want you to attend. And, you know, I did the math and discovered that the number of cups of coffee Jeff had bought for me over the two years that we had known each other was, you know, roughly the same cost as the conference. So, you know, I, I felt that I owed him. So I, I went ahead and <laughs> headed that way. Uh, and at this, the conference was called Jubilee, and it was in Pittsburgh. And I thought I knew Christianity from my experiences in middle school and high school, you know, constantly getting sent to the youth mm-hmm. minister, uh, being told a couple of times that I was going to yeah. hell, and always over some kind of peripheral issue. So it you was, thought you knew Christianity, but the Christianity you knew, you had you had largely abandoned. Yeah, the, the Christianity I thought I knew was all about argument. And definitely that Christianity... I found to be very unconcerned with Jesus. And so that was the Christianity I thought I knew. And so Mm. I go to this conference, and I hear people talking about mission, but mission isn't let's go and, you know, take over this village with the gospel. It was more, hey, let's see how we can actually serve in areas that need it, and let's see the ways that we can remain open and humble in that process. And, you know, hey, let's let's talk about political engagement, but, but not in a way that, you know, just seeks to take over the different branches of government and establish a theocracy, but in a way that can genuinely help our neighbors. And, mm. and 
you know, let's talk about love and prayer and acceptance and lifting one another up. And I, I didn't have a frame of reference for that um, other than some of the behaviors that I saw my parents model mm. in our house and the way that they uh, always had our door open to people. And But still looking around this conference and seeing people just hugging and not fighting about everything, I didn't really know what to do. And so... The one piece of my Southern Baptist upbringing that I thought I could cling to was at least I know if I go into a bar, these people will leave me alone for a bit. Hmm. And so, so, so you're, you're in Pittsburgh, you're at this conference, yeah. And in many ways, it, this is a shaking experience for you because the the Christianity that you had largely abandoned, suddenly you're getting a picture of a Christianity that is is more compelling absolutely and more and more engaging to you but just because you see something that looks more attractive doesn't suddenly mean you're willing to give up kind of this new identity you're working on forming mm-hmm. as a as a college student and so the idea is well if i go into a bar and in, here in pittsburgh at this conference at least i'll be set free of all of these of all these people who are here, and I can just you—you you, you were looking for, you were looking for home base. You're looking for a safe space. I, I was having an introvert moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just a, just a moment where I could sit by myself at the bar, drink a Guinness. But yeah, I just I wanted to retreat and think. And though I might not have used the word going into that bar setting, I probably wanted to pray just a little bit. Hmm. Um, but it was an opportunity for you know I, I need. I need to be alone for a bit. Yeah. And then I looked around that space, and lo and behold, but people from the conference were in the bar too. And, you know, there were glasses of wine floating around and things like that, and I thought, this is unreal. No, this should be the one place where, you know, the Christians who walk in here should burst into flame. Like, you know, nobody's leaving tracks on the table instead of tips. Like, what is this? Um, and I realized, you know, if the love of God can follow me into this space, it can follow me anywhere. Mm-hmm. And the thing about it, too... Mm-hmm. is that an experience like that forces you to go back and reconsider some of the things you saw growing up. Because even though I had in my mind Christianity is this judgmental thing, how many times did my youth minister sit and talk with me or mm-hmm. open the doors to the kids with skateboards? You know, How many times did a college chaplain go out of his way just to hang out even though there would be potentially no return on his investment, pardon the you know, yeah. financial terminology. You know, how many times did I see my parents going to interfaith events and things like that and just wanting to love their neighbors? And, and so it showed me, okay, that, that world of Christianity has been there this whole time. It's mm-hmm. just I had gotten swept up in the argument. Yeah. Essentially, you're, the thing that you had railed against, the thing you were responding to or reacting to that you had seen in the Christianity of your childhood was actually the thing you had taken part in. Exactly. And suddenly God's doing a work in your heart in this bar in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. And you're looking back on your life and a chaplain who came alongside of your family and just mourned with you yeah. and provided space for whatever that experience was going to look like comes to mind. And suddenly a youth pastor who over and over and over again when you were in the insufferable know-it-all I'm going to win the argument mm-hmm. would open up his door and say here's a place to sit down talk 
and suddenly there's a chaplain you encountered at college who's going, I'm going to meet with you for coffee every week, and we're just going to talk because I care about you and I'm interested in what God is doing in your heart. And all the while, you're going, I don't want any part of Christianity. I don't want any part of that Christianity. I don't want any part of it. And there are just steady people in your life, steady influences, people of faith who have just come alongside of you and given you all the space you need, but have lovingly and carefully tried to walk with you to Jesus. That's a big moment. How do you get from that moment in your senior year to, I'm going to go to seminary at Duke University? Well, Because there's, there's not a lot of time between you attending that conference and then you being a seminarian. Yeah, and some, some misfiled paperwork and a, and a flu actually kind of led to that process. Um, I was actually majoring in religious studies at the time. And, you know, the religious studies degree is Because you wanted to have everything you needed to win the debate. Oh, of course, yeah. Yeah. Well, and the religious studies degree from a liberal arts college is not the same as, you know, majoring in Bible. It's much more, I'm going to learn about these different traditions around the world. It's almost more kind of an anthropology, sociology type degree. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, you know, I love this subject matter. Uh, in fact, at one point, I'd even dabbled with going to law school to specialize in First Amendment issues. Ultimately, though, the, the law school thing fell through. I, I got the scores I needed, but just looking around the room when I went to take the law school admission test, the LSAT, I, I knew, like, I, I don't want to do this. Yeah. Um, and so in that aimlessness, said, you know, I'll, I'll pursue an academic master's in religion. I'll, I'll teach religion. And, and so I filled out, you know, okay, Duke University... That's a recognizable name. Uh, MDiv. Okay, sure. Not fully realizing that an MDiv is not an academic teaching degree. It's a ministerial degree. Yeah. And so I submitted that application. My advisors never corrected me. I think they might have had a feeling. Um, and then when I got back from that conference, you know, so kind of saying to myself, okay, I think I may be called to do this with my whole life. Uh, I had the flu. I was totally out, you know, passed out for a week, throwing up all that fun stuff. And that Wednesday, following the conference, I get the phone call saying I've been accepted to Duke. I had to let it go to voicemail so that I could replay the message a couple of times and make sure I hadn't dreamed it because, you know, I had the flu. Uh, but once I healed up and listened to that voicemail a couple of times, I realized, you know, this, yeah, this is it. I didn't plan this, but yeah. this is where I'm supposed to go. It's so interesting to me. You had gone, I will pursue academic study in religion. Yeah. I'll get a master's in religion. I'll get an MA in religion from Duke University, and that will set me up to teach religion at other liberal arts college like the ones I just graduated from. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, hey, for, for, for uh, if we're talking dream careers for insufferable know-it-alls, Oh yeah, like that's that's <laughs> as good as it gets. Mm -hmm. And the providence of God, before you even go to Pittsburgh, before you even go to this conference, and God does this incredible work in your heart. You had applied to Duke and applied for the wrong degree, right? Like you you weren't <laughs> intending to go Masters of Divinity mm -hmm. at Duke. You had simply checked the wrong box, pretty much, and. No one corrected you on it. Mm -hmm. 
you go to Jubilee Conference in Pittsburgh, God does this incredible work in your heart. You come back and find out, I've been accepted to the seminary mm-hmm. to, to get a ministerial degree at Duke University. Right after I graduated college, Duke even had the option of if you want to come and start early and do what's called a, a field education placement where I would go and be an intern in a church. And while I was there, I, I functioned like an associate pastor, gave sermons, had a visitation route that I was on. But I went ahead and accepted that internship when it was offered because I was kind of thinking, okay, I'm going to prove that I'm really bad at this and then I'll be able to go the academic route again. And lo and behold, I loved it. I was in a tiny little town called Fremont, North Carolina, where just, you know, walk down Main Street and know everyone's name, swing by the pharmacy, get a free ice cream cone, and, you know, work in the church building late at night because my house didn't have Wi-Fi. I just was practically adopted by a woman there, M, who I referred to as my mom away from mom. I just fell in love with the place. And so, yeah, I actually wound up staying on there for an additional year. That's incredible. So you you go three years at mm-hmm. Duke University, yeah. graduate with a master's in divinity from one of the most prestigious seminaries in the country. Mm-hmm. And when that's all said and done, I mean, really, there, there are a world of options that are open to you. And you, despite the Christianity of your childhood that you had railed against, um, you took a position as a youth pastor in a Baptist church. The thing about it, though, is that when I graduated from Duke, I, I had it in my mind, like, okay, the one thing I do not want to do is youth ministry. Yeah. And the reason for that was I knew, you know, okay, I'm, I'm a recent seminary grad, like, I'm probably going to be bouncing around for a couple of years, like, you know, I'm, I'm not quite at a place in my life, you know, emotionally and uh, maturity-wise where I can know for sure that I'll be able to put down roots. Um, and I remember there was a kind of a a matching service through Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, Mm -hmm. uh, which was the denomination I kind of hesitantly wound up identifying with. Um, And I find most of the people I know who are CBF are kind of like, well, I'm kind of CBF. Mm -hmm. Um, But I had only looked at, you know, associate this, associate that. And finally, the secretary who headed that up actually gave me a call and just said, you know, what are you doing? You look like you'd be great for youth ministry. You know, you're you're still at a place in life where you can relate well to teens, but you're old enough that you can relate to their parents as well. Like, why aren't you looking at youth ministry positions? And when I gave her that spiel of, you know, I'm I'm not sure that I can give the kind of commitment these students need, there was just silence on the other end of the phone for a minute. And then mm. she finally just said, finally, somebody gets it. What are you talking about? You know, well, you know, everybody tries to use youth ministry as, you know, the first step on a ladder, and that's not fair to anyone. And so the fact that you know that going in, I've got a church I'm going to recommend you for. And sure enough, Bayshore Baptist Church wound up hiring me. Yeah. So this is Bayshore Baptist Church in... Tampa, Florida. In Tampa, Florida. Mm-hmm. This is your first placement out of seminary. Yep. Um, and you really loved it. Absolutely. Well, and and the thing about it, too, was that that was a church that absolutely set me up for success. Uh, There was the, she had moved over to being the children's director. She did not like the term minister, even though she was very much a minister. Uh, Dina Marshall, 
the now the children's director, but had just built up the youth group so much in her time there. Mm -hmm. uh, immediately prior to my getting there, they had gone to a camp and had like 14 professions of faith wow. among their student body. And then, so right when I got there, I got to immediately step in and do more than a dozen baptisms. Wow. Right off the bat. Uh, our pastor, Chris Cadenhead, at the time, who's since moved on to a church in Virginia, um, I had had a field ed supervisor at one point and who was verbally and emotionally kind of abusive and manipulative. Hmm. And that was a, a very difficult experience to get over. Uh, I actually, during my third year of Div School, had to take a little bit of just kind of an emotional break, hmm. uh, recovering from some of that. Uh, Chris was very sensitive to that and had a way of when he stopped by my office to see how I was doing, would knock on my door and say, hey, how's it going? You're not in trouble. Yeah. And just, okay. And, you know, after six months of, hey, how's it going? You're not in trouble. I started to really believe it. Like it was a big healing for me. Um, Tammy Snyder, the minister to adults I worked with there, was just like the ultimate colleague. Uh, she and I would occasionally play little pranks on each other and everything. And, and with some of the staff turnover at Bayshore, because... There were a lot of people who would come there and only be able to stay for a couple of years. Tammy designated herself the resident minister mm -hmm. and said, you know, look, I'm, my role here is not just to be the minister to the adult population, but also to, to be the caregiver to this staff. Yeah. And just having that team around me combined with the fact that, man, those students were absolutely incredible. Mm -hmm. uh, I once had a girl named Mackenzie Kennedy uh, came into my office one day and just straight up told me, Tom, I don't think we're doing enough to reach these demographics of students, and I've done the research, and you know, here's the programs that you can implement. I've conducted some you know, kind of casual surveys, and uh, I think on Friday afternoons during the summer, if we can just have some game days, it'll bring in these students who aren't really being reached by our ministry. And I was just sitting there like, uh, what, no pie charts? <laughs> no, but she's uh, students like that that I was blessed to be able to work with just made it an ideal first church experience. And you served ultimately for three years? Uh, yeah, a little, little over two years. A <laughs> um, little over two years as the youth pastor there. And, and really for a place that you loved so much and were so fond of, mm -hmm. that's, that's a short time to spend there in ministry. What was, yes. what was the impetus of you of you leaving Bayshore and ultimately ending up in Jacksonville, Florida? So there were several factors that came together at the same time. Uh, one of them was after I'd been there a little over a year, the senior pastor pulled the staff together and said, you know, hey, I've been called to another church. And so for a period of several months, Tammy, who I described earlier, she and I were essentially running the place. Yeah. And to be co-leading a church only just a year or so out of seminary, and at the time to be the only person on staff with, with a seminary degree, uh, that has since changed there. But you know, with, with all of those different things going on, and additionally being 24 at the yeah. time, that's an exceptional load. Uh, and I, looking back, I can tell that there were some bad habits emerging as far as basically workaholism. Mm -hmm. uh, it was not uncommon for me to work from you know 80 to 100 hours a week I would occasionally sleep in my office like just very very unhealthy stuff mm. that as a young single person who lives within five minutes of the church you can kind of get away with but 
it'll come back and kind of wear you down after yeah. a while. That, that, it, was, so. it was untenable going forward. Right. And we had reached a place where we had brought in an interim pastor. The, the search was underway to bring in a senior pastor. And additionally, the youth group there had reached a point where the students and the volunteers were leading so much of it, which was by design. Uh, I, my goal, as I often told people, was to make myself obsolete. And looking around at the program with the work that the students and the volunteer team there were doing, it felt like we had headed that way. Like the, the program was strong, the church was back on its feet, and I was dog tired, and there was just this thing kind of, you know, this thing kind of eating at me like, is, is it time to, you know, I've, I've done what I came here to do. Yeah. Uh, is it time to, to begin exploring elsewhere? At the same time, my brother received a job offer in Jacksonville, mm -hmm. and he and I had not lived in the same state in about 15 years. Wow. And you know how I, how I mentioned just kind of saying, you know, I'm, I'm kind of done with church. Uh, he had hit that point a little earlier than I had and, you know, continues to be just, just kind of done with church. Mm -hmm. um, so the opportunity to live in the same city as him and to kind of rebuild the relationship with him since it's, it's tough when you live halfway across the country from each other. All of that made Jacksonville very appealing. Mm -hmm. And the crazier part still was I, I wasn't looking yet. Yeah. The, the church that I served at here in town called me up seemingly out of the blue. So you, it mm -hmm. wasn't something where you knew of an opening and, and it put a resume in. R really, a church was kind of almost doing like a headhunter search. Very much so. And saw you, you know, at this point, just over two years at Bayshore Baptist. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, youth, the youth ministry there is in a really healthy position. Mm -hmm. You'd done really well with it. And you had positioned it so that you could step away without... Um, a real negative impact to that ministry. Right. And or at least, you know, that's that's what I thought. It still hurts when you leave a place. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, mm -hmm. It certainly still hurts, and, and yeah. there's there's emotional ties into it, but mm -hmm. you you had done the work so that you could leave well. Yeah. And a church in Jacksonville reaches out to you. Mm -hmm. Out of the blue. Yeah. And your brother's living here now, mm -hmm. and that becomes an offer that's hard to say no to. Yeah. In fact, uh, I would say even an offer that was almost impossible to refuse. Yeah. Uh, it was an opportunity to work with, also it was a larger church, mm -hmm. so uh, a chance to work with a larger volunteer team with a wider variety of experiences. Uh, it was a youth ministry that had also experienced a lot of turnover and needed someone stable who could come and stay for a long time. And I was absolutely not that person, but none of us knew it at the time. Um, <laughs> and but you thought, you thought at the time it might be. I thought you, at the time it might be. You, you, thought, mm -hmm. you thought going into it, this might be a good fit. This would be a good place to put down roots. Yeah. I can have a career here. Mm -hmm. I, I can really make a go of it. Yeah, well, and you know, before accepting the job, I thought all that. Yeah. Within 10 days, I knew it was not going to be the case. That what, was all it took. <laughs> what was, and what was the, was was it just the, the sum of all the things together, or was there a particular thing that, that specifically told you this is not going to be long term? Um, there were several different factors. Uh, one, there were a few things with the departure of the previous youth minister that just felt a little bit strange. Mm -hmm. uh, he had had a, a pretty active voice in the search committee process. And that is normally 
not the Baptist way. Yeah. Uh, in fact, when I came and did my visit, I was very surprised when they said, oh, do you want to meet the current youth minister? I'm like, you're already doing the search and he hasn't left yet? Ooh. Um, so my search process was rushed, and that was those were some red flags that I just ran right by really early on. Mm-hmm. Um, additionally, there was one of the things I observed about that youth ministry was that the students wanted one thing, the parents wanted one thing, and the volunteers wanted something else. And none of those three groups felt like they were being heard. Mm-hmm. Even though the, the youth minister there was very beloved, I, I quickly discovered that all of those groups felt like their needs were being a little bit overlooked. Uh, so following a very popular youth minister, a lot of needs being unaddressed, a rushed search process, um, at 10 days in, I, I had a, a fight between a couple of students and you know, sent out an email that just said, "Hey, let's you know, let's kind of keep an eye on both boys, and you know, let's let's walk with them through this. I just want you know, let's be be careful about this." And one of the parents of one of those students just lashed out, and I wound up having to do a whole lot of damage control. and And I, I kind of looked at that situation and realized this this position is going to be nothing but this for as long as I'm here. Yeah, like this, you know, based on what I'm seeing, I do not believe this is going to get better. And it did not. Uh, in fact, it got much, much worse. Um, the lowest points of that ministry, and which, strangely enough, was also when I started to really feel like chaplaincy was for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I, I say that every minister is really a three-legged stool. And those three legs that a minister needs are going to be administration, the preaching and teaching aspect, and then lastly, pastoral care. And I know, first and foremost, pastoral care is what's on my heart. Uh, Preaching and teaching is something I feel like I'm I'm okay at. You know, we could slide some coasters under that leg and it'd probably be okay. Uh, But then administration, that, yeah, that leg is, like, unattached. Um, I, I really think that the truly great pastors may have two of the three. Yeah. And the truly terrible pastors may have none of the three. Um, I just know that pastoral care is where my heart is. And at that church, I didn't get to do it. Yeah. Uh, I was, it was almost solely an administrative role just because of the size of the program and how it was structured. My student interaction time was virtually non-existent. Yeah. And at one point, very tragically, we had a student take his own life. And in that moment, that was the one week that I worked there where I actually felt like a pastor. Yeah. Because that was the one week where people looked at me and said, you know, it, it, right now it doesn't matter if we don't have the dinner theater decorations yet. You know, it, it doesn't matter that we don't have all of the houses for the Disciple Now weekend yet. Just go be with the students. Yeah. And so during that one week I said, you know, okay, this, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Why am I doing this instead? Yeah. And in fact, a few parents, when I announced that I was leaving that position, even came to me and said, yeah, after that happened, we knew we wouldn't get to have you much longer. Really? Mm-hmm. You know, I can't help but go back again and again to two chaplains in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, to the chaplain who came around you and your family after the death of your sister. And during that season, as she was battling this illness, and the chaplain who came alongside you in college, mm-hmm. in your undergraduate institution, and just loved on you, yeah. and it is not surprising to me that that would be 
not only how how God would knit you together, but that that would be the attractive part. That that would be the thing that you would see so much value in, in terms of what it means to be a pastor and what pastoral ministry looks like, because that is what had had the biggest impact on your life. Yeah. That that your life hadn't been changed by a sermon someone had preached or by a program that had been put together with flawless, you know, thought and administration. Mm-hmm. Your life had been changed by some chaplains that in very crucial moments in your life had come alongside of you or your family and just be there. Yeah. And, and so what you begin to see as you are now serving in a really large church, mm-hmm. multifaceted, huge staff, huge, you know, just, just the numbers are larger and the, the scope of it is so much bigger. And the thing that you're go, the thing that you're missing, the thing that you're longing for is this pastoral, that's this pastoral care, this, I, I just want to be with these people. I just want to love on these people. I'm realizing that you're in a position that maybe was, more of the things you didn't feel gifted in or equipped to do than than you were aware of. Yeah. During my downtime at that church, I would go and hang out in bars. A good friend of mine is a bartender at Intuition Ale Works, uh, and so I would go and spend time with him. And and the strange thing, too, you know, if, if I had my brother with me, we would wind up talking religion, and every time my brother got up to go to the bathroom, the person on the next bar stool would turn to me and say, hey, what was that all about? And I'd talk about Jesus. Uh, and in conversations with this actually mutual friend of ours who's a bartender, uh, he would have to step away, and somebody would turn to me and say, hey, what were you guys talking about? And I'd wind up talking about Jesus. Uh, and when I would come back to the church I was serving the next morning, or the, you know, a couple of days later, I would go into my supervisor's office, and of course I was totally up front. I had a wonderful supervisor there. And I would just tell him, you know, if I were really serious about this Jesus thing, I would just leave church work and go hang out in bars. And after a while, it just kind of stopped being a joke. Mm. And so feeling that I needed more education in pastoral care and more training in pastoral care, because, you know, that's that's not really... Duke's high point, you know, if if you want to go into systematic theology, go to Duke. If you want to learn to be a pastor, go somewhere else. Feeling that I needed more education in pastoral care, I started doing what's called CPE, clinical pastoral education, and that is where you get planted directly in a hospital. And even though you were brand new at it, for however many months you're doing that program, you are the chaplain to the floors that you're assigned. And so while still working at a large church running a large program, I was going and spending nights in the hospital and, you know, doing the, the on-call work, you know, driving out to, to different units, responding to emergencies, and just loved it. You know, had had an amazing supervisor at the hospital who gave me a lot of the language to talk about pastoral care in a way that mm-hmm. I didn't previously have. Had a wonderful group of supportive peers in that process. And, and midway through that unit of education, uh, I did go ahead and leave my church position and strangely enough, I, I mentioned earlier that I, I had taken the law school admission test, and now I teach it. <laughs> that was uh, that was kind of it. Started out as a bill-paying job, but has become a calling all its own. Yeah. Working so you, with you, stressed-out students. You do LSAT prep. I do LSAT prep. The the test that I took and decided I didn't want to go to law school over is now the test that I teach during the daytime hours. 
while also working in hospitals and continuing those education units mm -hmm. and also and really my primary calling going into that bar space and being that listening ear on the next bar stool. So this passion for chaplaincy, this passion to just come alongside people where they are, mm -hmm. not, not to come alongside people who are where you want them to be, right. but to come alongside people and meet them where they are and love them there. Mm -hmm. um, that is, is a passion for you. It has been a passion your entire time in ministry. But in the clarity of growing up and the experiences, you really realize that, hey, where, where I'm best at that, where I'm best suited for that is hospitals and the bar space. Yeah. And, and there's, a lot of, there's a lot of Christians who will hear that and be shocked by that, at least on the surface. But when you think of what we see in Jesus in the Gospels, and you think about, because of the people he was spending his time with, um, the people that he hung out with, and the things that were said about him, because of who he was spending his time with. And then you think about, what would that look like today? What would that look like in the 21st century? And so for you, this isn't about, I want to be a, a, a minister who... Um, is really pro drinking or pro alcohol right. that 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 could be could not be more irrelevant to the the impulse here. This is about there are spaces and environments in our culture where no one is meeting people with the gospel of Jesus mm -hmm. and you seeing that and going, I want to fill that space. And so that provides you an opportunity to go into bar spaces and just be a, a listening ear. Exactly. To be someone to come alongside and do the exact same thing you do in the hospitals, mm -hmm. which is just talk to people about their story, where they're at, what their relationship is like with not just a personal God that we see in Jesus, but even the idea of God. What is, what has it been like for you, in the two years now? Uh, yeah, little. Well, let's see. I, I have to stop and think now. I, yeah, I left that church in June of 2016. So yeah, yeah, about so, two years. So about two years that you've mm -hmm. been doing just chaplaincy ministry in hospitals in bar spaces. Yeah. What are some of the things you've seen in those two years? What are some of the the things that you've experienced in those two years that tell you this is exactly where God has me. This is where, this is where God wants me to be. You may get a really long answer to this question. That's okay. I'm just going to open the valve and we'll see what occurs. Okay. I think one of the biggest things for me is being able to care for the caregivers. One of the things that I noticed immediately in the hospital setting and uh, having grown up uh, in a doctor's household and having gotten to know the nurses that took care of my sister is that nurses, first of all, are the front lines of spiritual care in a hospital setting. Mm -hmm. And secondly, still need spiritual care themselves. Yeah. And so working there in the hospital, 
I quickly developed a pattern of the first thing I did when I got to my floors is I would go and I would check in with the nurses and I would say, you know, okay, who needs somebody to talk to today? How are you doing as well? And, and actually, how are you doing might be a leadoff, but the more important question is usually how are you feeling? Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course now I'm, I'm married to a nurse as well. We, we didn't meet in that setting. She was actually one of my volunteers at my previous church. Yeah. Um, but seeing her as a caregiver and learning from Jesse's experiences has been so formative. But just as I would walk onto the floor at the hospital and ask the nurses, hey, who should I talk to today? I can do the same thing in a bar space. Mm-hmm. For me, the immediate priority is getting to know the bar staff. And so, you know, Ardwolf Brewing Company is where I am uh, at least twice a week doing this kind of work. And I've gotten to know Corey and Brandon on Sunday nights, now Madison, since Corey's moved over to a new gig. Uh, Kyle, a.k.a. Big Kyle, and Natalie, like, they played such a huge part in our Tuesday night programming. And, and more important than that, we formed a relationship with them. Yeah. Natalie helped plan our wedding reception, man. Yeah. Like, it's, it's been incredible. Um, in fact, uh, my friend who tends at Intuition, the thing that people don't seem to realize is just how busy bartenders are. Mm-hmm. And people often walk into the bar space expecting to, to unload their problems. I think Cheers set some really unrealistic <laughs> expectations for us. Uh, and, in fact, I even dabbled at one point with, do I want to be behind the bar? And just going and hanging out with some of my bartending friends, I realized, like, no, I, I couldn't have the sorts of long conversations. Yeah. But being able to walk into a space and just say... Hey, Brandon, what's going on at the table in the corner? Should I just go sit down with them for a minute? Yeah, yeah, that might be good. Because this is a trust that we've built. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the bartenders I worked with know that I'm not going to go and, you know, proselytize and, you know, y'all need Jesus. Like, that's, that's not what I'm there to do. Yeah. I'm there to listen. Uh, some of the things that we've had happen, uh, Jesse and I befriended a woman who was going through a difficult time. In fact, a, a bartender set up a friendship there. And I remember there was a night where Jesse and I had actually just gone out on our first official date. And we got a text from this mutual friend who we had met in the bar space, uh, talking about a, a falling out between her and her husband. And so Jesse's and my response was, okay, let's, let's cut this date short and go, go be with our new friend and just provide some care and a listening ear. And also, you know, make sure she doesn't drink too much because going into the bar when you've just had bad news is always a recipe for disaster. Yeah. And we were able to help her in that journey. Uh, a few nights ago, we were doing what we call brew theology, which actually some friends of mine up in Denver started, and we've transplanted it down here as well. That meets every other Tuesday at Ardwolf. And had a guy show up toward the end who just wanted to talk for a bit. Yeah. And so Jesse and my co-leader Thomas finished up the conversation that the group was having while I was able to step to the bar and just kind of talk with him. Turned out his mom was in the hospital right up the street. Mm. And so we, we sat and talked, learned his history, kind of unloaded some stuff. And during that time, you know, we, we went ahead and cut off his drinks so that he could get back up to the hospital because that's where his heart was and that's where he wanted to be. Yeah. Um, building relationships with some of the bars around town and some of these bartenders. I, I've spent years getting to know these staffs, and yeah. they've started to open up about, you know, I'm, I'm not really into the whole church thing, but I, I kind of had this spiritual experience the other day. Can we talk about it for a minute? Mm-hmm. Man, those are the conversations I live for. Yeah. I love those moments. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what bar chaplaincy is all about. That's what brief theology is all about, and I love doing that work. That's incredible. So talk to me about some of the 
really encouraging and affirming words that you've received from mentors and pastors and and kind of church leaders who have who see what you're doing who see the heart behind it and have provided space for you to wrestle with what does this look like what are we doing and and also have have been the people who have kind of had your back in all this talk talk about some of that influence of the of the churches and, and pastors and leaders who've come alongside you and have just affirmed the work that they see happening in these spaces. It's a long list. Uh, one of the things I've discovered is that it's often easier to get bartenders on your side than it is pastors because, you know, as you've mentioned, there, there are some roadblocks. When you come to a pastor and say, hey, I'm going to be doing this thing in a bar that may not increase your church membership at all and may absorb some of your time, but I'd like you just to be there. It's not exactly the greatest sales pitch. And yet at the same time, right now we're recording this in San Marco Church, which has volunteered office space for bar chaplain and brew theology. Uh, Steve Painter has been a tremendous ally. And in fact, the way that a lot of this got started was when I left the church where I had been working, uh, a mutual friend, uh, my friend Derek, invited me here to San Marco Church, where I met Steve, who then looked at me and said, hey, I got this brewery right around the street. Can you help me build a relationship with them? Mm. He's been able to be another pastor to that space. Mm. Um, in fact, with my, uh, with my chaplaincy training, I've encountered some, uh, some interesting roadblocks. Uh, a good buddy of mine is a fellow chaplain. Uh, we, we serve at one of the same hospitals. But the way we met was we both went to City Hall to speak about a brewery that was being opened on Main Street in Springfield. I was there to speak in favor of the brewery, talking about the ways it can be a safe spiritual space and the programs we do there. He was there to speak against the brewery and why it shouldn't be opened a few blocks away from his church. (laughs) That was about a year and a half ago, and we've since become really good friends, and I know he's got my back. He's not going to come with me into the brewery space, but at the same time, we can sit there and compare notes and talk about what's going on in the community and be a resource to one another. Uh, And I think having somebody who he trusts in the brewery space makes them a little bit more comfortable having them as neighbors. Um, I actually at one point had a supervisor at the hospital who herself was in recovery. And that was one of those where I, I was initially very awkward about, you know, how, how do we approach this? And uh, she was incredible about saying, you know, that's, I won't go there and have a drink with you, but I still want to know what you're doing and how can I, how I can be of help to you. Yeah. Uh, she actually wound up... We discovered that kind of a, I'm going to go ahead and call it a neutral ground, even though that's probably not the best way to put it, uh, but a space where we could encounter a lot of people who were either in recovery or frankly needed to be in recovery was in some of the work we were doing in homeless ministry and being able to just spend time with a lot of those guys and to hear their stories of the things that they had been through. Mm-hmm was incredible and and additionally hanging out with some of the folks in recovery has taught me what to watch for when i'm in the bar setting yeah because that's one of those where you know yes i'm in a bar space but i also acknowledge that alcohol is an issue yeah to still be able to approach it with caution and with love for one another and my mentors along the journey have helped me in that process and of course i tell you i love encountering other pastors doing this work 
Yeah, Susan Rogers over at the well at Springfield has built an incredible relationship with Hyperion Brewing Company uh, to the point where they're even holding brunch gatherings there. Uh, I, I think about some of the ministers that I encountered. I, I just came back from the Wild Goose Festival. And let me tell you, Atlanta Bar Church is doing incredible work at just bringing the gospel with them wherever they go. Mm-hmm. There are beer and hymns gatherings all over the country now, yeah. and the people leading those are just some of the most patient, loving people who do exactly what we've been talking about this whole time, mm-hmm. coming along beside people. I am so challenged and encouraged by what you're doing, and um, I just love I love that your experience as a senior in college and again providence of god you've had all of these chaplains all of these people who've come alongside you and provided so much pastoral care over your life but i love what god did in your heart in that bar in pittsburgh where god just made it abundantly clear to you that i will pursue you anywhere and so i think that what you are doing is is such a an incarnational picture of that of of a of a gospel that pursues anywhere and if there's a gospel that pursues anywhere then we need to have carriers of the gospel in every space and so i just love uh, your heart i love what i see happening um i'm excited for more and more stories of what God is doing through this ministry to connect others to the heart of God and into avenues for faithful living. And so I'm, I'm just so glad to know you. I'm so excited for what you're doing and I want to thank you so much for being with us on the podcast today. Thank you for having me, Rob.